Episode, episode 16 of Doctor Who Too Hot for TV. I'm Dylan. I'm Jack. And uh, we are the Doctor Who Too Hot for TV team. So we always like to catch up with kind of Doctor Who spin-off news, find out what's going on in the world. So exciting news. Telos Publishing has announced a new book by David J. Howe called The Who Adventures, and it's a history of the new adventures. Mm. Full of art, you know, the, the history behind the range all that stuff, sketches, unused art, everything you could want to know about the Virgin New Adventures range, which I think sounds jolly exciting. Yeah, yeah. The Ninth Doctor, he's back. He is. Have you listened to anything? No, not at all. I listened to the first two, Yeah. and it was so lovely to hear him back, but I just lost the will to listen to it. (laughs) (laughs) It It was lovely. It kind of lacked the the vibrancy of those 13 episodes that he did. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure I'll finish off at some point. But that's not the only return to the world of Doctor Who spin-offs we've had this week. Do you know who else has been back? Noel Clark. No, not Noel Clark. It's only bloody Bill Baggs. He's back. He's back. Now, as you know, we've covered a few BBV things, but BBV as a company is officially back. Yeah. They've started doing very short probe films that you can download for like, I guess they're like a couple of minutes long, and you download them for like a quid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've been releasing new digital versatile discs. Yeah. First we had John Nathan Turner, uncut. Yeah. Make of that what you will. <laughs> and now they're doing John Pertwee, uncut. And it's basically just old interviews that have been, you've seen bits of them used on DVDs, and they were from the Doctor's documentary. Mm-hmm. You can buy them in full if that's the sort of thing that floats your boat. Yeah, um, not particularly. <laughs> I don't buy DVDs, so I'm the wrong market. You are the wrong market. You love DVDs. I, I largely love Blu-rays. Yeah. Does the world need BBV right now? No, not really. <laughs> but if the BBC's going to get cancelled, maybe, maybe now it's the time for them to come back, step into the void. Do you think Doctor Who's going to get cancelled? No, no, no. No, exactly. The first thing we're doing today is a script for Doctor Who, The Time Lord, by mm-hmm. Johnny Byrne, which was a Doctor Who movie mm. that was never made, that, broadly speaking, was in development from 1986 to 1994. Yeah. As we all know, it never happened. Um, obviously, usually I do a bit of a news of what was going on with Doctor Who at the time. Now, the script we read was from the 1989-1990 period. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is run you through how, if you're a Doctor Who fan, how you would have seen this in the press over that kind of year and a bit. Okay. So, Doctor Who magazine, March 1988, featured a sexy picture of Caroline Monroe. She was a Bond girl, she was in some Harima horror films, mm. and she was married to one of the producers, and she was lined up to play Morgana. She was the only ever bit of official casting they ever had, but she actually did a convention. 
Really? Yes, so she they went to a convention and talked about the movie, and she was there as one of the guests. That's nuts. Um, so it had a sexy picture of her in it, and a report that the Doctor will be played by John Cleese after the role had been turned down by Tom Conti and Tim Curry. Then in June 1988, they still don't have a Doctor, but the film will be out by Christmas. Mm. Location work has begun, but no filming. I don't know what that means, because location work would mean you were filming. Yeah. I guess they must have meant scouting. In September of 88, the magazine confidently says the Doctor has been cast. Then there's nothing for a year. Then they say Coast to Coast has now bought all the rights to produce a Doctor Who film. Producer Lytton says nobody would have spent the money we have for a film that isn't going to happen. He will eat his words. (laughs) Shooting will run for 13 weeks from March 1990, much of it in Yugoslavia. November 89, Doctor Who's officially cancelled. December 89, no news on the film, but funding has been secured. January 1990, producers rubbished rumours that Donald Sutherland had been cast. Then February 1990, Christopher Tucker has been selected to do makeup on the project. Finances are still a hold-up. August 1990, the film is now titled Doctor Who the Time Lord. Lanzarote is on the cards as a location. The TARDIS interior has been budgeted at £150,000. A character in it called Morgana will be played by Caroline Monroe, but the character is renamed Zilla after there was a similar character name that appeared in The Greatest Show in the Galaxy. But uh, J&T says, I've seen the script and it's excellent. It will make a very good film. Then in November... Lytton says, screenplay has been rewritten as too much has leaked. They are making another movie, then they will use the same crew and bring them straight onto this. Christopher Tucker still on board, making monsters and doing makeup. They are still looking for money around $5 million. But it still has no director or no star. On the planet Deimos, the Doctor and old friend Gonji reunite just in time to observe an illegal time rater being auctioned off in the planet's seedy underworld. A criminal known as Neglos wins the item in the name of his master, Varnax. Varnax is a power-hungry Time Lord who, with his accomplices, travel the universe in the timeship The Creator with their army of robotic warriors. The Doctor and Gonji return to Gallifrey to report the news to the High Council, where they pick up the Doctor's assistant, a Time Lady named Cora. Varnax is in search of two fusion crystals, which when combined in the timeship will grant the user immortality causing planet-wide destruction in its wake. The Doctor, Cora and Gonji make their way to the planet Kern, where a primitive species of cannibals are in possession of the first crystal. After narrowly avoiding being cooked alive, Neglos arrives in time to steal the crystal. The second crystal is located in a museum in present-day London, where a young American backpacker named Shane helps to retrieve it and joins the TARDIS crew. Before the Doctor can return the crystal to Gallifrey, Varnax time-rams the TARDIS and the Doctor and co are soon left back on Earth without a TARDIS and any form of fusion crystals. With the help of the Brigadier, they're able to locate a nuclear waste site where Varnax will begin the fusion process. Whilst Gonji and Shane battle Neglos and the Warriors, the Doctor infiltrates the Creator, where he discovers the newly young and immortal Varnax. The Doctor destroys the fusion crystals, leaving Varnax to turn into a dark mutation, and the Doctor escapes before the Creator explodes, whilst Gonji dies in battle. The Doctor, Kor and Shane escape the wreckage and are picked up by an undercover Time Lord who reunites them with the TARDIS. Before you read this, yeah, what did you know about this film? I knew that there was a lot of drafts. I'd read synopses, very brief ones, of 
films in development from the nth doctor is that what it's called yeah a book about undeveloped films from the the wilderness years and i remember the title the title varnax yeah because um, even as a six-year-old, that or well, like a ten-year-old, that was a shit title, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. But I the, and I knew there was lots of drafts of film scripts for Doctor Who about crystals, and everyone was really into Gallifrey, and that, that any Doctor Who film had to have Gallifrey in it. But the actual events, I had no idea what to expect. So it was pretty. It was all new reading it. I'll give you a bit of a background of the kind of the film up to this point and the people behind it. So. At various points, this company was known as the Dalton Rays, Greenlight, and Coast to Coast. The main partners in this were Peter Litton, who was a director slash writer, George Dugdale, who was a director slash writer and was married to the aforementioned Caroline Monroe, John Humphreys, who did the special effects for The Five Doctors, and also various other film and TV shows. And they were the three main partners. They raised money to buy the movie rights from the BBC, and the money came from a consortium of around 20 investors, uh, which included Brian Ferry and John Isley of Dire Straits. That, that's a fairly common way for films to make money. It's mm. often people looking for investments, looking for tax write-offs and things like that. So the papers at the time tried to play it like, Brian Ferry making Doctor Who movie. He was just looking to make money. He didn't care about the property. So initially, Lytton and Dugdale came up with the story, and it, the script was written by a guy called Mark Ezra. Lytton, Dugdale and Ezra collaborated on a film called Slaughter High in 1985, where all three are credited as the writer and director. In 1990, they'd make another sort of horror film called Living Doll. Ezra's script was the first script that they obviously had, and it has quite a few of the same elements um, and some notably different ones too. The Doctor's put on trial for interference and forced to teach Gallifrey and law on Gallifrey, which is where he meets Cora. There are still the three crystals and an Earth person, but this time they are called Mike Bradley. There is K-9, and you still get to see Christopher Columbus, which seems to show up in every draft of this. The Brigadier's in it again and plays a bigger part. He leads an army of unit tanks. And the Brigadier's wife appears, but she's called Dorothy, not Doris. There were various drafts of that script before Johnny Burns bought in. Johnny Byrne was brought in in 1988 as a bigger name who might secure finance. Is Johnny Byrne a big name? He created no. Heartbeat, but it's not exactly Hollywood, is it? No. This version was called The Time Lord, and we read a version of that. Although there was one rewrite entirely set in the UK as a low-budget option. It was in the 1988 script that Gonji and Zilla first kind of enter the story. And it's broadly the same thing, although in one draft, the companion is a streetwise American kid called Spanish that they meet in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Uh, and that's the most sci-fi version. It looks a lot more at Varnax's backstory and battle with the Time Lords. From there, we get several other drafts, and it starts to become the story that we've read. We get more Earth, we get Jack the Ripper, Spanish becomes Scott, and the plot becomes about Varnax wanting to be immortal. As I said, the script we read was from 89-90. Is this what you would expect from an 80s-slash-90s Doctor Who film? It's a lot more it's a lot more modern than I expected it to be. I don't think it's that far off what how a Doctor Who film would be made today. The only notable absence is there's a big there's a big focus on there being a villain as opposed to a monster. Yeah. That's the thing that distinguishes it. But um I I'm surprised when you said they were thinking about casting John Cleese or a lot of the other kind of 90s ideas of what people thought the Doctor was because I kept reading it and hearing Matt Smith in the part. Really? Because I thought the the role sounded really, really quite young because it's quite an action-based lead and he's not... 
he's quite he's a bit more of a generic action hero in it that I could see Matt Smith doing this. Yeah, you couldn't see John Cleese do it. No. Not no. at all. We'll come to the cast later on because yeah. there's all sorts of names that are attached to it. But let's talk about Johnny Byrne. Yeah. This is the man that brought us the Keeper of Traken, yeah. Ark of Infinity, and Warriors of the Deep. <laughs> and then he, he writes this. I know, I know. How does it compare to his previous work? It, well, I I think it's a fucking good script. So do I. I think it's brilliant. And it's also a million times better than the TV movie that we got. As a script, I think it's better. It is It is like you text me when you were mm. reading it just and saying, there's no way Johnny Byrne wrote this. Yeah. Because, so his previous work, it's all about big relaunches of legacy characters um, and this mm. project is kind of light on that. And I think if you look at his, he can tell a decent story, but I guess here he was just given a chance to let loose and kind mm. of do what he, his version of Doctor Who. Yeah. So you remember when we did Slip Back? Yeah. And Eric Saywood's version of Doctor Who was a lot funnier and a mm. lot more sarcastic. And I think this is because he didn't have JNT mm. watching over him. I feel like that's kind of the thing here. And actually, Burns got quite a good take on how to relaunch this property. Yeah. So I was really surprised. Like, it's it's quite funny. It's funny, and it's just full of... It's, it's one big chase through time and space. And it's a proper it's a proper film. You read it and you go, "This is this is this is cinematic," and then like every scene has got something in it that's big or, you know, dramatic. And it, they, they do. He does some very clever stuff. Of like, he cuts between like this action at the crucible, the slash silo place, to Doctor and companions on a busy train full of football fans. Yeah, it's like a rip roaring adventure. Yeah. Although the first few pages mentions prostitutes and brothels and has yeah. the Doctor in drag, which is certainly setting up... It's mm. not exactly business as usual for Doctor Who, is it? Do you know, it remi- I've never seen these films, but it reminds me a bit of what I imagine the the Sherlock Holmes movies with, what's his name, Robert Downey Jr. Right. It's got a lot of that tone to it. So it opens with the Doctor pretending to be a prostitute and then launching on this villain... Who, it's really odd. He, it's Jack the Ripper, but Jack the Ripper is an alien, and it's not even in Victorian times. It's in the 1930s, and the Doctor like runs off to his TARDIS and goes into an actual police box yeah. by mistake, which I think is a good gag that should have been done already on in the new series, but they haven't. Oh, don't they have? Yeah, it's really like it's the, the Doctor's like a proper buccaneer in it. He is, yeah. He's like a Hollywood hero, but. They obviously have the Gomji, so he does action, but he yeah. doesn't do a whole lot of violence. Although he does kill a plasmid weasel in the mm. opening of the thing. The Doctor just kills it, and then is like, yeah, I've, I've, I've done my duty. He, he tries to shoot the villain at the end. He does as well, and he doesn't know at that point that he's not going to die. So, yeah. he, But Gomji's there as like the big action guy yeah. in terms of violence, and the Doctor does a bit of violence, but he's like the, as you say, the buccaneer, so he's, mm. he's doing stunts rather yeah. than... Rather than killing people, does does Johnny Byrne hate women? <laughs> um, Most of his female characters, apart from Cora, are essentially evil or disgusting. Um, it opens with Jack the Ripper, who's essentially a prostitute killer, and they has things like the nymphids, oversexed aliens. Like, oh yeah, that's true. Um, there's the Temple of Virginus as well, uh, <laughs> and the line, "You mincing slut upper." Yes, yeah. And he describes Cora as obviously a vision of the Virgin Mary. 
Yeah. Oh, well, that's um, that's Christopher Columbus yeah. mistaken her. Yeah. I liked Cora. She's pretty much Romana. Yeah. Um, oh, I liked her as well. Yeah, it's not that much. And then there's an evil villainess who is an ex-companion of the Doctor's. They were lovers, right? Love, yeah, the Doctor's ex-lover. Were they in that version? I can't remember, but I know in other versions they are. In this, yeah, there's a bit of a jealousy thing where there's this evil Time Lord who has got the Doctor's ex-lover, which is uh, interesting. There's uh, there's some fruity dialogue like where he, as we said, to call someone a mincing slat upper or whatever it is. Yeah. And there's also Gonji calls someone a son of a Yeah, yeah. There's lots of fake, <laughs> fake swear, space swearing. And again, for a Johnny Byrne script, and indeed considering what we got in the TV movie, I know they're separate mm. companies, but it's surprisingly light on fan wank and continuity, mm. which I think is the right approach. Yeah. Like you get what the show is or the the film is in yeah. Like the first few minutes and then it's just yeah. a, an action adventure. Well, so Ga- Gallifrey's in it, but Gallifrey's treated as a space FBI headquarters well, where the they go. The doctor works for them. Yeah, 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 the doctor's an agent for them. I do think it's the right level of continuity. So you do get little jokes like Gonji puts on the, the fourth doctor's coat. There's a broken Dalek and Cybermen in the auction. Yeah. Um and then just out of the blue, two thirds of the way through, he only calls the brigadier. Yeah, yeah. Which I was like, you know, that it had that happened, mm. that would have been the most punch the air moment because it's not quite clear mm. up until that point exactly where this is in the Doctor's timeline of whether it's a reboot. Yeah, because you get things like the chameleon circuit breaks, mm. but then late, I think he reveals later that it's happened again. Mm. So this could be a brand new Doctor for the first. Yeah. Third of the film, at least. But then, yeah, you suddenly get the Brigadier mm. show up. Which is like, can you imagine, if this was made, Nick Courtney suddenly... It's like when uh, Sylvester McCoy was cast in The Hobbit. You're just yeah. like, I never expected that person to be in a Hollywood blockbuster. Yeah, yeah. So the caveat for the movie was, when they signed it, was it must stand apart from the ongoing television series because when they got the rights, McCoy was filming his first season. The BBC would have final approval over certain aspects, cast, script, etc. And they were not allowed to use the Daleks or the Master Mm. or any enemies, basically, because it was like, you've got to do something new. They didn't know that they were going to cancel the TV show at the time, so they wanted all those for the TV show, which I think also seems a bit... While I say I like the approach, it's a bit odd that a 1980s BBC was like, no, don't use the Daleks or the Cybermen. Mm. Not our big properties. Yeah. It, no, it is odd. There's, there's there's a race of robots in it called the Warriors. They remind me of those what are those robots in the Phantom Menace. Uh, those yeah. droids. Yeah. Well, it's a it's that Star Wars thing of stormtroopers and droids, yeah. where you have these things with no personality mm. and that are detached from being human or whatever. Yeah. So you can kill as many as of them as you want. Yeah. It draws a lot from Star Wars because there's a lot of there's a lot of space cantina moments. Yeah. It doesn't start it, we don't get to present day earth until halfway through the the film. It's scene 54 that they reach modern day earth. Yeah. Which yeah. I think it's completely the wrong choice for now. Yeah. But at that time people went going into sci-fi films wanted yeah. sci-fi. Yeah. They don't want what we do now, which is tether the story to Earth. Yeah, and also the um, the villain has a bit of a Darth Vader. So, so it's set in a universe where everyone is aware of the villain and of the evil things they've done before the film has mm. started. And it's about this kind of old villain returning. And it's pretty much... The, I mean, the creator is not far off the Death Star. Yeah. Uh, and also, like, these characters, if you shave off the kind of identifiers, mm. it could be the Master. Right? Yeah. Like... 
but they've just gone. We can't use the master. Mm. Let's tell a different a different story. Yeah. But you like you say there's the, it owes a lot to Star Wars and the Star Trek movies rather than the TV show. I would say. Mm. You know, you visit multiple locations and you feel like they desperately want to show off the formula and go look how alien this show can be. It's like that Chris Columbus scene, even though it's not really important, is shoehorned into every draft. Because they want to go, we're back in time. Yeah. Just to kind of show that bit. And then, you know, we get all these huge alien planets. You know, we've got the cannibals. Mm. We've got, what's it called? Demos? Demos? Yeah. Which is like, that's your Star Wars planet. That's like the cantina in Star mm. Wars. But then there's this end where they're inside the, the silo, is it? Yeah. And they're in this like beautiful garden which is like a temporary paradise but if you kind of look into it it all falls to mush yeah yeah and i thought that was the most kind of doctor who idea of it mm. kind of finishing in that, that that area i don't know i just thought it was, was was very interesting what do you think are i mean we've talked about this a little bit beyond star wars are there any other big kind of influences in tone or cultural reference points do you think well it's hard now that you've said when it was written Part of me kept seeing something like Fifth Element, like as a 90s science fiction film, I kept seeing that as a, as a go-to reference point. But I think there's a, there's a little bit of Brazil in it. Yeah. I think I can see a bit of that. And there's also... Um, that, but what reminded me is that there's, there's, there's a scene... The, the, I think the best scene in it is when the, they're on this planet of cannibals and they're, they're being cooked... And the cannibals have a music-based culture. So what they do is that they've got this alien radio device and the crystal they're after is in there. And so um, halfway through them getting like cooked alive, they, they start up this ceremony and activate the radio and it starts playing Fats Waller. Yeah. And then also at the end of the scene, uh, the villains arrive and go off with the crystal and everything's ruined. And at the same time, it starts playing We'll Meet Again Someday. Yeah. And I thought that was fucking brilliant. I thought was, that was such a good scene. It was a very funny scene. Yeah. It's written, like, the comedy beats, you can see them being performed well, mm. like, with a decent cast and a decent director. You know they're going to hit all those those comedy beats. Other influences, I thought, it's still got a bit of Flash Gordon, like the Paradise of yeah. Death did as well. It's a bit Indiana Jones. Yes. Um, and Masters of the Universe. Masters of the Universe is another one. Also a bit like the Mummy, the museum stuff reminded yeah. me of the Mummy. Yeah. So I also wanted to look at things that were out at the time. So it was budgeted at various points. The mm. two main points seem to be five million, yeah, which is not enough to make that script, or thirty million, which is sixty-two million dollars in today's money. And you would still struggle to make that script well on that, but their money went further. So films of the time in the thirty to forty mm. million range in the same genre. You've got Back to the Future two and three. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Ghostbusters 2, Star Trek The Final Frontier, Predator 2, Total Recall, Robocop 2. So that's kind of... It is achievable on that money if you get that 30 million. The lower end is... Do you know who Canon Films are? No. So Canon Films were a bit of a ragtag organisation in the the 80s and 90s. Mm. They made the Masters of the Universe film. But they used to essentially... They make posters for films, yeah. take them to film fairs, like industry film fairs, and whichever posters sold, like in terms of investors would go, I like that idea. Mm. They'd said they'd already made the movies. They hadn't. They'd then come back based on what the investors liked and make the movies. They're always cutting corners. 
and they made some pretty terrible films mm. and a couple of really great ones. So had it been a five million budget, Mass of the Universe was twenty two million. Yeah. Five million, it would have been something like Cyborg, which is what Canon made, Swamp Thing and Frankenhooker. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the sci fi sort of films that were made for that and that must have been the mm. the draft where they were all on Earth. Mm. So had it been made, you would hope it was around the thirty, forty million, because you couldn't do that film on no on on that money. But um, let's talk about the supporting cast. We've got Gonji, Shane, and Cora. Do you think they're interesting enough characters? Are they well realised? Well, Gonji is an ex commander of the Gallifreyan Time Battalion. But is he Gallifreyan? They know they well. He's not a Time Lord. So I think he might be Gallifreyan, or he might be from another world. Uh, he's a typical. He's like he's he's the action hero, uh, who does all the fighting, and um, he's like the alpha male of the crew. I liked him. He's he's pretty much a stock figure. But I thought he was cool. Shane is a backpacker who's very much a bit like um, is it Marty McFly? Yeah, yeah. He's pretty much that. He's he's that audience identity figure that. Rose was and things like that, yeah. but obviously it's the 1980s, so it's a young, spotty teenager sort of thing. Cause... But again, he only turns up halfway through. Yeah, and then Cora, I thought I really like Cora. Um, she doesn't get much to do; she's just there to make, to say you know, sarcastic lines, and to she's she's clever, so she's a time lord, and um, there are some funny bits. So like, she's she she owes a, a library book back on Gallifrey. And whilst whilst they're on this primitive alien planet and they're trying to get on side with the cannibals, her she has a communicator wrist that comes alive with a hologram of a Time Lord saying, your library book is still due, and that gets them imprisoned. And I quite like that gag. Yeah. Um, but she she doesn't have enough to do at the end of the film. She kind of gets lost. Uh, no. Um, and Shane becomes this super warrior because yeah. his great-great-great-grandfather was a warrior. So all of a sudden, he somehow has the power to be like a, a super warrior. Yeah. And Gonji's obviously killed off. Yeah. Is that the first death in the film? Yeah, I guess besides that, it's just the warriors and people running away from explosions. And... Yeah. Oh, I guess the cannibals get killed a lot. Oh, yeah, they do, don't they? Yeah. Is it recognisably the Doctor? I think it is, but they, there's certain bits of it that you just aren't highlighted. So the Doctor's, the doctor's pacifism... Is never really a point in question. Yeah, and then it's like him shooting someone towards the end. Like he's seen as the brain of the piece, and he gets the he he's the one that con- confronts the villain at the end for the final battle. Mm. But there is a bit of a blurring between him and Gonji as to yeah. who 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 the proper lead is, and that's why it made me curious as to how they would have cast it because I read it and I thought these are both two young actors that will play this and there would be some kind of competition well the doctor is described as a fit striking looking man keen-eyed sharp-witted deceptively subtle and you know they have the doctor in his normal costume which is a long coat and a big hat like you say you think of matt smith or david tennant you don't think of Mm. like some of the names on this list yeah so names discussed include alan rickman denholm elliott donald sutherland Mm. tim curry Dudley Moore, John Cleese, Albert Finney. The series contenders seem to be Alan Rickman mm. from Rutger Hauer, and despite what it said in Gallifrey Guardian, Donald Sutherland. Yeah. 
to me, Rickman is possibly the best fit. But even so, mm. I am thinking Rickman in Dogma rather than Rickman in Die Hard. Here. That description of the Doctor, the Doctor you get in the script, I don't see. You don't see Dudley Moore? <laughs> I don't see Dudley Moore, no. <laughs> That's random. Um, but also, I guess they were struggling to be like, the idea of the Doctor being this English you know, superhero, like trying to cast a type. Really, it depends a lot on how you cast Gonji because there's a degree to which Gonji is a bit, he's kind of taking that, um, almost a bit like the role of, um, what's his name in Robin Hood? Morgan Freeman. Yeah, yeah, as in, I can see, I I can see like an African-American actor playing Gonji. Yeah, and then having a British actor as the Doctor because the the American actor especially would be who you want to get the American audience in, like yeah. they did with Eric Roberts, weirdly <laughs> in the TV movie. One other name they put in the hat, yeah. who I think would have been perfect. Yeah, but later went on to play another British icon, mm. Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, yeah. I think out of all the names. That's probably the most exciting one there, mm. and you could, the way the Doctor's written in this, because he hasn't been James Bond yet, yeah. So he's not forever associated with that role. Mm. And actually, I think Timothy Dalton probably could have been a good choice as well. Any of the Bonds, yeah. Samantha Bond. Let's talk about the villains: mm. Varnax, Neglos, and Zilla. Yeah. What silly fucking names! <laughs> None of them are interesting, but they depend heavily. On prosthetics, so Negloss is kind of implied to have this kind of superhuman stretchability, like yeah. the way that he's described as being slightly inhuman in the way that he he's like uber fast and like his limbs work in some peculiar stretch Armstrong type yeah. way. They're the least interesting parts of the story, I think. Hmm. Like all the set pieces and the alien worlds are great. Yeah. The actual story, the quest that they go on is fun. Mm. The TARDIS team are all very likable, but I give very little shits about yeah. any of the villains. They're quite generic. I don't really engage with them. And obviously Varnax has some great dialogue. He says things like, you mock me, mock Varnax. And he says, we meet again, Doctor. The age of Varnax, the immortal. You will pay but not yet. <laughs> Later. <laughs> He's just... He tro- he drops the Doctor Who cliches in a way that... He felt like something out of a Mark Gatiss sketch about Doctor Who in a yeah. way that the rest of it, I thought, was taking it quite seriously. Yeah. he uh, he's, he's dodgy. But he he's described as being kind of... He's really old and, like, decrepit and in a huge... Uh, life support machine that's kind of a bit evil. I could see that looking pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then he turns into Dark Varnax at the end, which has got action figure written all over it. Yeah, he sprouts I- wings. Yeah. <laughs> Randomly. It's a bit like the Lazarus experiment that bit at the end, I think. I thought that echoed in the way that the Master ends up in the TV movie. The fact that he... In the TV movie, the, the, the Master goes through a similar thing where he's trying to... He goes through this process with the Eye of Harmony to become immortal or bigger, and then it goes wrong, the Doctor disrupts it, and then the Master turns into this slightly demonic version of himself. Yeah. Which kind of is what happens to Varnax here, but with a budget. <laughs> well, it didn't have a budget, that was the problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he, like, he, yeah, he becomes Dark Varnax, which means he, get, he becomes, like, musclier and hairier and sprouts wings and is evil and has got a deeper voice. So this is called the Time Lord. Yeah. 
and later becomes last of the Time Lords, and we'll talk about that in a bit. There's a lot of talk of who the Time Lords are in the first few pages, but it says it in the description. Yeah. So you're not getting that description on screen. No. So it's a bit like the Time Lords are this mythical race, blah, blah, blah. But actually, it doesn't mean anything to the... Like, what would that have looked like to an audience? Well, this is what I thought is is the way that they... They don't... I don't think they communicate some of the time travel elements that well. So the mm. first scene, like I said, is that in the, in the description it says Jack the Ripper is on the loose in 1930s London. But it's never really explicitly pointed out like that there's something going on with, with time. Yeah. So I can... If it was made, I can imagine they would scrap that scene and rewrite it entirely because it just doesn't sell the idea. And then we finally... And then they go to a planet where there's a time rotor being auctioned off and there's someone that's previously worked for Gallifrey. But we don't get to... We don't go to Gallifrey until after that. Mm. Um, and it's not even... There's nothing spectacular about it in the in the, in the the scenes. Like, mm. the, like it's just... They go to Gallifrey, pick up Cora. Um, the TARDIS gets a parking fine. Like there's nothing, yeah. there's nothing that shows it's, it as being majestical. It, it's like a big budget arc of Infinity where the Time Lords are possibly their least interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, you know, I guess it's kind of telling. That, yeah. that it's the same author in that respect. What I do like about the Time Lords is yeah. that bloody weird cliffhanger at the end where yeah. they get into a car with two newlyweds who turn out to be Time Lord agents. The yeah. car spins round and yeah. they fuck off into time and space. Yeah, that's cool. And the, and the way the Doctor clocks it's a Time Lord is that a book falls off the dashboard written by Davros. No, that that the, the they get into a car pulled up and it says like just married Laura and Steve or whatever, and they get in and there's one man inside, and the Doctor notices a book fall out the glove compartment, and it's the library book that Cora is due to return. Oh, does Davros write books really? He live he grew up in a war zone. What's he writing? I don't know. Well, he's, he's only got one hand to do it. Um... <laughs> Yeah, and then the Doctor smiles, knowing that it's a Time Lord in the car. They drive off, and it yeah, it spins and turns into the tar- the police box. And <laughs> this is some bonkers stuff. <laughs> That's very Bill and Ted. That ending was proper Bill and Ted. I thought. So I'm going to put the, a link to the script in the show notes yeah. because there is an online version as well, so people can read it if they want to. But for someone who had a doc- if you're talking to a Doctor Who fan, our yeah. audience, yeah, sum up. What the in one sentence sum up this version of Doctor Who? Oh, um, Star Wars, Bill and Ted, chase through time, action-packed, big budget. I, I've thing. got, I've got like an exciting version of the chase. <laughs> it is, it is, it is. But also, it's I great. just need to say the chase is very exciting. Yeah. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> no, I, th- I was, I was really, really shocked at how much I enjoyed this. Yeah. I think it's a great, I think it's a great script. I was, I was dreading it a little bit. Yeah. Because I knew that the the Varnax scripts when I read about them in the Nth Doctor as a kid mm. were the least interesting bit because I was ten. Yeah. And I wanted to read all these crazy fathers and brothers reboots. That, yeah. Um, <laughs> that all the all the fan wang heavy shit of like the Doctor and the Master, but the sort of thing a ten year old thinks Doctor Who should be about. Yeah. But isn't. But actually, this is just a really well written, like story. Mm. Do they? Do these guys get what Doctor Who is? I think to a big degree. But what are, this comes to the idea that Doctor Who is a, is is an anthology TV show. So there aren't that many Doctor Who stories that actually you could say this is really Doctor Who. The thing about Doctor Who is the is the contrast of different stories in a row. Yeah. So there are very like when there's a Dalek story, you're like this is Doctor Who. 
but so, so many Doctor Who stories are just generic science fiction things that you mm. put the characters into. And this is not too far off that. But I do, I think I like it as a chase through time and space. It misses some things tonally about the Doctor. Yeah. But overall, I think it's like if you take if if you're not allowed to use the Daleks or the Cybermen, I think this is a pretty good. This is an ideal Doctor Who film. Yeah, I think so too. Like they kind of hit beats of. You can tell these are people who grew up liking 70s Doctor Who. Yeah. And that's why the Brigadier's there. And that's why there's a Tom Baker coat. But then they'll do stupid things like like mess up classic lines. So someone goes, and it's really as big as was the inside. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's a story that's fundamentally about... Like, it's quite meta in a way, because mm. it's a franchise looking for new life, like mm. the Zarnax is. Like, it's about regeneration yeah. um, in a way that I don't think the show's ever really about. So it's kind of scrambling for an identity. Do you wish it had been made? Yes, I do. I do. I just, I was, it's genuinely exciting reading it, because it's just full of, it's just full of action, and it's full of twists, and they really, they really hit all the beats that you want in a, in a, in a, in a chase film like this. Do you think it would have been successful and do you think it would have spawned any sequels? I think it's so ex- it would have been so expensive to make that I reckon it would have been one of those films where there would have been so many compromises that it would have been really flawed by the end of it. As in, things would have been cut, things would have been changed and it would have been one of those films where someone makes a documentary 10 years later and go, this is why it made no sense and yeah. this is why it, it went all weird at this point. So the thing is... The property's value is kind of at an all-time low. Like, yeah. whatever you think of the McCoy era, in the public eye, the show had lost its way and mm. was off, you know, off kilter and was dying. Mm. So you're trying to sell a big-budget version of a dead series. Think about the original Star Trek. It was ten years before they relaunched it as a film series. Mm. And even then, it's quite different to, mm. to the TV series. Like, had the show ended after The Five Doctors and gone out on a nostalgic high, this film in 1989, I think, would have been like a Doctor Who's back and mm. look how amazing it is, but it's just the wrong time yeah. to kind of pitch that. So, um, do you want to know what happened next? Yeah. So, in 1990, Litton and Dugdale joined forces with a new producer called Felice Arden. Byrne wanted to steer clear of the original premise, so they went with The Last of the Time Lords, where in the opening, Varnax destroyed Gallifrey and the Doctor was an amnesic survivor. In these drafts, the TARDIS has been hidden by the Doctor as it's the last one and Varnax is after it. In later drafts, the film opens with the Doctor in a uh, Victorian asylum, so he's a mental patient essentially. Um, having dreams of a destroyed Gallifrey. It still features the same characters, but it's much darker, and the Doctor is not the Doctor for at least half of the movie. Mm. Um, And I think what happened here is 1989, Tim Burton's Batman comes out, and that changes everybody's idea of what you do with those sort of things. Now, in retrospect, Tim Burton's Batman isn't the dark, broody thing that people thought it was at the time. It's still Mm. very much comic book. Yeah. But it's just that unique... It's dark imagery. Yeah. And so I think that's what kind of moved that on. Mm. There was a brief version that featured two Doctors, an old one and a young one, being chased by the Time Lords as he's framed for meddling with time. Why do you think it was never made? The last of the Time Lords. Well, basically Both. any version of these. How, how many films based on TV shows have been successful? What were the Star Trek films like? Like prior to the the recent ones, the the reboot ones, they were fairly well. I mean, they did about seven or eight Star Trek yeah. films, and they were fairly well received. 
had been other things on the buses. The movie obviously did very well, um. <laughs> but it's quite it's is very rare. I mean, you've had like Downton Abbey the film. It happens more now. Yeah. Do you know? So do you know what one of the big issues in securing funding was for this film? What I said earlier, Dark Varnax. Yeah. It's got action figure written all over it. One of the most profitable things for films like this at the time was the merchandising. All the merchandising for Doctor Who mm. was a BBC thing. So yeah. no investor, no distributors were getting the, the, the toys and things like that, which, right. is, which is what they want. And those would have been worth a fortune. But finally, they partnered with Lumiere Pictures, who were French-owned, but with substantial interest in Britain. Lumiere planned to make three films in 1993. Now, this was a year before the April 1994 deadline, where the rights reverted back to the BBC. Mm. A new screenplay was commissioned, this time from Denny Martin Flynn, who wrote Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Leonard Nimoy was attached to direct the film. Mm. Um, Leonard Nimoy, who played Spock, and he directed two Star Trek films and a few other things. Then, this is where shit gets interesting... The Dalton Rays were then devastated when reports began emerging in late 1993 that Amberlin and Steven Spielberg were interested in the rights of making a Doctor Who film. Now, John Humphrey says, we were finally getting to the point where we could start filming and then there was this bombshell. Now, we actually know now that Steven Spielberg was never interested in making a Doctor Who film. Philip Siegel, mm. who worked for his company was interested in doing it and used the Amberlin thing. Like, uh, Spielberg was aware that that's what one of his executives wanted to do. It yeah. was like, you know, here's my blessing, you pursue the product and we'll see whether we can turn it into something. But there is not a world where there was ever Steven Spielberg's Doctor Who. Okay. It, it did not exist. So what happens, the BBC are kind of getting excited at the idea of a Spielberg Doctor Who. Mm. And Philip Siegel was dangling this carrot... So what uh, Lumiere and these guys decided to do was enter into what's called second unit photography, where they would get the director to go out and shoot some effects plates, some landscapes, things like that, but the cameras are rolling. So you go to Nevada and you shoot Gallifrey, mm. and then you've got your your effects plates where you can later mat on and like the city of Gallifrey and stuff like that. The film's in production. Your, your rights are safe. You get the extension. Philip Siegel got wind of this, mm. spoke to Leno Leonard Nimoy personally and yeah. said, these guys don't have the money mm. when they actually did. And they're not ready to go. They're just using you. Please don't do it. And Nimoy agreed not to do it. And so the rights reverted back to the BBC and then they went to Amblin to Philip Siegel. Wow. So that it was felt crafty. Yeah, so it feels like it nearly happened. Yeah. But it doesn't end there. Yeah. In 1997, Doug Dale, Humphreys and Lytton bought a law lawsuit against the BBC for 13 million. Well, it was 1 million in compensation and 13 million in potential lost profits. I don't know whether that court case was successful. I doubt it. One of them said that they spent their own savings about 400,000 pounds to get this off the ground. I can't uh, believe lost profits were involved. <laughs> That's that's why it was cancelled. <laughs> Humphrey said, uh, the simple fact that we have been ruined by the BBC, the way they behave even now is unbelievable. Um, they felt that they were obstructed by the BBC who, the moment Spielberg was around, mm. they just became disinterested in the project. Yeah. So basically they, they had to remortgage their homes to keep to keep paying for the rights and stuff like that. Mm. So it was 
It's a bit crafty, but that sort of stuff happens in film all the time. Yeah. Ultimately, for me, it was the wrong time mm. for them to make the film, and it was never going to happen. And it's a shame. I wish it had been made. Me too. I really do. I think it's yeah. I think it was great, and also, it's got a much firmer idea as to who its audience is than the TV movie by Philip Siegel. In yeah, terms of it, it's a as in this is just a proper adventure film that you can see being you could you could see it being repeated again and again, you know, on Easter bank yeah. holiday. I do think that the guys behind it bit off more than they can chew. Mm. They were dealing with potentially a multi million pound property and they were people who while they had experience making films it was not these sort of films. Mm. And if you look on their IMDb's, they've got a couple of credits for a couple of low-budget horror films. And it's yeah. like... I suppose the only comparison you could get is Peter Jackson going from doing Bad Taste to The Hobbit. But yeah. that was a director with a vision and the backing of a huge studio. These are just a bunch of guys who managed to convince the BBC mm. to give them the rights to one of their biggest properties that they had. Mm. And it just, like... It just must have been a very odd situation. But again, that's probably how little the BBC valued Doctor Who at the time. Clanger or banger? It's a banger. It's an absolute banger. Well done, Johnny Byrne. Yeah. And if Big Finish are out there, I'd love to hear a Big Finish adaptation of this. Yes, yes. Like, more than I thought I possibly would. But there we go. Doctor Who, the Time Lord, not coming soon to a cinema near you. Well done, Johnny Byrne. Well done, Johnny Byrne. Too, too, too hot for TV. Thin Ice is an audio drama that was recorded on the 30th of September and the 1st of October 2010 at the Moat Studios and was released on April 14th, 2011, just before Series 6 of the new series started. A new Doctor Who comic relief sketch was announced. Nick Courtney had just died. The Patrick Troughton biography was announced, so we all found out what a dirty, dirty boy he was. The comic strip running at the time was Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. The DVD out was The Ark, and then Big Finish had two companion chronicles out, The Perpetual Bond, featuring the first Doctor, Stephen and Oliver Harper, and uh, Perry and the Piscon Paradox? Yeah. More of that later. Other Big Finish out was The Feast of Axos, starring the sixth Doctor, Evelyn and Thomas Brewster. Do you remember Thomas Brewster? Yes, I do. And Prisoner of the Sun, starring the eighth Doctor and Lucy Miller. So, I mean, at this point... The new series is established, been around for years. Stephen Moffat's taken over. Big Finish are very much in that fan-pleasing era. They, you know, they're starting to bring things like the axons back and stuff like that. So that's kind of where we are. But they were doing. I've I've heard a lot of those Big Finish stories, and they were doing some interesting stuff. They were doing. They were doing some. The, the companion chronicles were full of quite experimental things. Yeah. So that's something they gave William Hartnell a new companion. Yeah. Which I enjoyed. Yeah, now everybody's got 20 new companions. But, yeah. Uh, no, I, they were doing stuff, but it was getting more fan-wanky, I think. Yeah. Too, 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 too hot for TV. Moscow, 1967. East Ender Marcus Creevy and Russian Lieutenant Rayner plot to steal the relics of a crashed Martian spaceship stored beneath the Kremlin. The Doctor and Ace become embroiled and discover that Creevy is in league with an ice warrior called Hesh who is trying to reclaim the armour of an ancient legendary warrior called Caesar. During their adventures, the Doctor is in contact with an adjudicator Time Lord, who is overseeing the events as a test mission to see if Ace will qualify for enrolment in the Prydonian Academy. 
After the group are abducted by a Martian spaceship, Reyna reveals she is pregnant with Creevy's child, and after trying on the helmet they manage to steal, finds the relic fusing with her biology and is transformed into the ancient warrior Caesar. The transformation accelerates her pregnancy and the Doctor helps her to deliver the child. The Doctor abandons Ace to let her complete her induction mission for the Time Lords, who soon discovers her betrayal by the Professor. Ace challenges Sazir to a duel, but Sazir refuses, and so Ace instead swaps the feeds on one of the Martian relics to restore Rayna from Sazir's possession. The Adjudicator Time Lord informs the Doctor that Ace has not been accepted into the Academy, and Ace will be returned to Perivale. The Doctor intercepts her and promises to make amends, inviting her to join him once more on his travels. Does it feel like a proper continuation of season 26 more than those early Big Finish stories? No, it just, it felt, if you didn't know this, you could have just thought it was just another Big Finish story, I think. So by by this point, they'd had like the Klein stuff, the Forge, Death in the Family, which kind of felt like a natural end to the Seventh Doctor Big Finish run. Like if you turned around and said Sylvester McCoy is not doing any more after that, you would have felt like you got a good run of like extra McCoy. Um, But here it's very much sort of back to basics. It feels like somewhere in between like a season 26 and a new adventure. Yeah. And it, But it, to me, it does evoke the feeling of season 26 slightly more, or the McCoy era in general. It's a mm. bit Delta and the Bannermen. It's a bit Remembrance. It's a bit Fenric. And actually, it also feels a bit like Countermeasures, the other big yeah. Finnish range. And you get a lot of stuff. like Even just things like the Eastern European accents feel very McCoy. Yeah. Which yeah. I know is weird, but I think that's just because I was obsessed with Curse of Fenric as a kid. And setting it in the yeah, setting it in the sixties as well. Yeah. It's quite an eighties thing to do. And having an e- a Cockney guy in Russia. A Cockney guy in Russia. Yeah. Who is played by Gary from EastEnders. <laughs> yes. I, I straight away I went, That's Gary from EastEnders. <laughs> and I looked at the actor and went, It is Gary from EastEnders. So, it's written by Mark Platt, writer of Ghostlight. Yeah. And um, by this point, he'd done some new adventures, he'd written Downtime, he'd done Spare Parts and loads of other big finish. How do you feel about Platt as a writer? Is Ghostlight something you enjoy? Did you yeah, enjoy his no, I think, I think Mark Platt is great. Yeah? I think he's a great Doctor Who writer. Favourites? I like Ghostlight. I like Lou Guru. Yeah. I, there's lo- there's, what big finishes has he, has he written? Fucking shitloads. He wrote. He, he wrote. He only did two new adventures: Cat's Cradle, Times Crucible, and then Lung Barrow. But Lung Barrow, in one form or another, was his original pitch for Ghostlight. Yeah. But everyone went, "Don't do that. You'll ruin the mystique." Yeah. Then he obviously he wrote Downtime, everyone's favourite spin-off. And then Big Finish-wise, Lugaru, Spare Parts, Valhalla, Time Reef, Paper Cuts, The Cradle of the Snake, The Silver Turk, The Butcher of Brisbane. Eldrad Must Die, Planet of the Rani, The Behemoth. Of those that I've heard, I've liked the so Spare Parts, Lugaru, Valhalla, Paper Cuts. I've got no memory of Valhalla or Paper Cuts at all. I think Paper Cuts was a Sixth Doctor and Charlie story set in... Uh, it had big samurai origami warriors with, with sentient paper, which is good. Sentient paper, that's yeah. a Stephen Moffat idea, isn't it? Valhalla was a, the Seventh Doctor travelling alone. That was at the start of Nick Briggs taking over. Right. But yeah, so he's done some interesting stuff. I, I'm a big fan of Lugaru too. I think it gets kind of overlooked as like 
because it's not a big ep- because it's overshadowed by spare parts in many ways of those, yeah. that early run. But it's just it's quite a dark, atmospheric, yeah. interesting story. Mm. We should we should definitely listen to that one day. What do you think of the script he delivers here? Oh, I'm not a fan. You're not a fan. <laughs> no, I well I I really tuned out towards the end. Get enough Ice Warriors together on audio and you fucking <laughs> lost me because it's just a bunch of people hissing. There were little things that I liked, but I, I think it's just the flawed... There is a flaw in the premise of trying to of trying to write ideas from the time. As in, it's these aren't existing scripts. Yeah. They're just some ideas from what a, a, a script meeting that have now been turned into stories, which then there was no guarantee that they would have been followed through when it came to actually writing. Yeah. I really liked it. Yeah? I, You're allowed to. I, I know, I know. I thought I'd heard it before, and I think I have, but I remember really disliking it or, mm. or being really uninterested mm. in it the first time around. But to me, it really felt like it just gave me a bit of a nostalgic kick. Yeah. And I just thought it was quite well paced in a way that a lot of big finish stuff isn't. I loved the spy thriller stuff and the doctor sort of trying to enroll Ace in the Pridonian Academy. One thing I've got to say is everybody fucking loves that idea, don't they? Because they wanted to do it in the TV series. Yeah. Death Comes to Time essentially does it. And yes. I think in like that Omega audio. Um, like Omega Vengeance, or no, I can't remember what it's called. Ace ends up on Gallifrey as well. Everybody's trying to get Ace to yes, Gallifrey. Yeah, which is mad. Is it like, <laughs> I just don't see how she, how she works in that environment. No, no, I get, I, I get how Death Comes to Time does it because that's she's kind of cast as an older Ace that's almost unrecognisable to her on TV. Mm. Whereas in here, in this story, I think they acknowledged the flaw in the idea because. The Doctor tries to enrol her against Ace's wish, and she hates she hates the idea of doing it. Um, she's not really on on board with it, and it doesn't make any sense when if the Doctor has always been running away from Gallifrey, why he would send his companion there. I think it's a bit of a it's someone that's got a bit lost watching Star Wars and thinking that it's yeah. like wanting to become a Jedi when really. It doesn't really work with the character of the Doctor. It's I like I like the idea of the Seventh Doctor setting his companion up for this because it works in the way that he's a manipulator. I th- I think his thing was almost to change the Time Lords rather than change Ace. It's like yeah. in what would have been a better arc had she joined the Time Lords is for the Doctor to be the Doctor to have been so affected by his friendship with Ace mm. that he feels like he can she can make the Time Lords better somehow and that's yeah. why she should go into the Academy. Yeah. But just taking a eighteen year old from Perivale and going, yeah. why don't you go and go to this God's Academy? <laughs> <laughs> but then Show him your badges. <laughs> but then I guess while she wouldn't have the know how as the time as children has proved, we can make any we can turn anybody into a time lord. Yeah. So she could have become a regenerating person. Yeah. Yeah. So as I said, I enjoyed it. I think the Ice Warrior stuff is the more cliched stuff. You know, you've got exiled warriors, lost mm. relics, warring factions. But it also has some I really like the imagery of like a biker gang in Ice Warrior helmets. I, I can see that stuff working on TV. Yeah. And also I do like that they're in a car and they get abducted by a Ice Warrior spaceship. I think that's quite. I, I, I that was my favourite bit because I just thought that would look really fun on TV. 
And I, I also really like the human characters. I think they're good, well-rounded, believable characters. Like, I was quite into it. Oh, I, li- I liked the pregnancy stuff. Yeah. I, I'm sure certain fans would hear it and go, this is soap opera But I quite like that in Doctor Who. Yeah, so do I. Let's talk about the characters. We talked about Creevy being played by Gary Hobbs in EastEnders. Yeah. What do we think of Marcus Creevy, the wheeler and dealer? Oh no, I like him. I like. I think it's really clever to have him in a Russian story. Yeah. I think it makes it very quirky and Doctor Who-y and makes him recognisable because a lot of the Russian characters do blur into one. Yeah. And obviously he's knocked up Lieutenant Rayner. Isn't uh, she's meant to be the ancestor of the next companion? She's the mom of the next. The companion. mom. And in the audios, so this is a very kind of Stephen Moffat sort mm. of thing that they were. This apparently they were planning. You meet the parents yeah. in this, and then in the next episode you meet Rain, the yeah. new companion, and those are her parents. Right, okay. And it was always planned that she'd have like a mob boss dad, okay. who is Creevy, so Creevy would be back as an older actor. And yeah, so in the audio she goes on to play mm. the daughter yeah. In the next lot. But I guess they were playing with that with in The Curse of Fenric already, with mm-hmm. Ace meeting her mom. Yeah. But obviously what happens in these versions is it's not the Doctor and Rain, it's the Doctor, Rain and Ace that go off together. Right. What do you think of this, of her playing an ice warrior? That felt quite modern. Yeah. I felt that reminded me a lot of The Empress of Mars, and I thought that... that I can't imagine them doing that at the time. That felt like yeah. someone that's been influenced by the new series. I actually found it quite scary. In a way. Not, like, it's quite it's a good idea. performance and like the transformation and stuff. I just thought like... It's a good idea. Yeah. We've also got Felnikov, played by John John Albassany. That's not a Russian name. He's done loads of TV and a few big finishes. As kind of the main human villain, what do you think of him? He's just quite functional, I think. Yeah. He's that like classic, well, there's an Eastern European, so they must be a baddie. Yeah. And then you've got Nigel Lambert, who played Hardin in The Leisure Hive, who plays the Time Lord, the Adjudicator. Okay. I quite liked that performance, because it wasn't your typical Time Lord performance. Yeah. And he sounded a bit like the Black Guardian. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, Valentine Valentine Dahl. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I quite liked that Time Lord performance. Beyond that, we've obviously got Nick Briggs playing Hesh. Um, who has tremendous the tremendous opening line of this heat is stifling, which mm. just makes him sound like someone in a Carry On film or something. <laughs> yeah, could you, or it's just something that you can imagine a, your nan saying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Nick Briggs is a decent ice warrior. Yeah. And he's obviously the go-to monster man, but this is the only monster he does that sounds like him. Yeah. Like when you're listening to that performance, you're like, that's Nick Briggs. Yeah, that's true. Um, so it calls, I think, a bit more on him to kind of. I don't know, you get a bit more of him. Do you think the BBC were, were right to move away from the hissing voice when they brought the Ice Warriors back? Did they? Yeah. It's very much Skullduck. It's almost that's true. It's almost Jadoonie. Yeah, that's true. Um, I really... Empress of Mars is one of my favourite new series stories. I think, I think it's, it's great. great. And I like the Ice Warriors in them. Maybe. I guess it is annoying here listening to people hissing. Because, yeah, you want them... You want them it just slows down the threat of the monsters. But I, I used to like it as a kid. They used to scare the shit out of me, the Ice Warriors. People always say that the Ice Warriors are kind of a one-note villain. They're actually developed, I feel, a lot more than hmm. 
a lot of Doctor Who villains, Doctor Who monsters. Yeah. Because they are like a race with different creeds and classes and you get like rebelling factions and their motives aren't always clear. Yeah. And you learn so much about their history. We never see that history in full swing because the budget doesn't exist. So while they're not my favourites, I do think that it's kind of... I feel like they've been given a bad rep that isn't necessarily true. And here, obviously, the best thing about them is they're obsessed with fish fingers. Yeah, yeah. And... I love that the fish fingers plays a part in their downfall yeah. because they find out where they are from this company that it keeps getting big deliveries of fish fingers <laughs> to them. And I think that, that that's Platt being able to have a bit... Now the new series is back and we know that we can take the piss out of certain Doctor Who things mm. like the Sontarans yeah. kind of became a bit of a caricature of themselves. I think Platt doesn't necessarily... He takes them as a credible threat, mm. but sees kind of their downfalls and like what like the potentially stupid things about them. Mm. Um, but it does do a thing that we won't get on screen for another year. It kind of confirms that they're living creatures grafted into a cybernetic suit. Yeah, and I really like that fusing of organic matter and tech. Yeah, like I think that's a really good idea. Um, and there's someone says that. The helmet was put on 11 other people and they all burnt from the inside. And the, indeed, the story opens with mm. somebody burning from the inside. But I, So the idea that the wearer has to almost be worthy, yeah, I think, is a good development of kind of the Ice Warriors. And it causes Raina to uh, to give birth prematurely. I know. It speeds up her pregnancy. Who, who, thought, who thought that? The Ice Warriors. Yeah. Are they those gangly creatures that you see in... The Col- tripods. No, no, in the Cold War. The Cold War. Cold oh, War. I fucking hated the end of Cold War. <laughs> fucking hated it. Really did, because I really like the Ice Warriors and I really fucking hate mm. the CGI thing that turned up at the end. Yeah. I'm really, I'm not, I'm still sore on that subject. <laughs> I think um, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, it feels like even the new series has kind of gone, oh, well, that happened, but also. Yeah, this is why I like the Empress of Mars, it was like, that didn't happen. Yeah. Just carry on. Yeah. Which is a shame. But yeah, to me, it kind of ruined them a little bit. Yeah. If they looked good, I would have been up for it. But it's just a, it's just a, it's just a big green floppy head. Yeah. If, if they went full uh, War of the Worlds type creature, then I'd be fine with that. But it's just... It's a bad design. It's yeah. bad CGI. And yeah. it cuts in between with those bad rubbery hands. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it just doesn't work. What do you think of the relationship between the Doctor and Aesir? I think I don't think it handles the whole Time Lord enrolment and the betrayal that Ace feels. I don't think it's as I don't think it's even as well acted as they did it, say, in the Curse of Fenric or in Ghostlight, which is a shame. Yeah, I just there's just a couple of things in either the, the, the script or the performances that don't quite get it get it right. Because to be fair on them, they've been doing this kind of stuff for a, like prior to this, all of the other big finished stories have gone through this down this road many many times before mm. so i can imagine that they're a bit bored with this kind of material mm. one of the cliffhangers is ace saying i'm never going to trust the doctor again and it's not i like sophie aldridge but it's not said in the best way no i think that that whole cliffhanger falls apart a bit yeah because also the cliffhanger should really be she gets uh, abandoned by the doctor and is being enrolled yes exactly it should it should be that not that she'll never trust I'll never trust him again yeah that's basically what she says I like their relationship and I do think they get some really good stuff I think the closing scene in particular where the doctor apologises is good and full of the sort of interplay you expect from them yeah but also it's an easy forget like 
the doctor manipulates her so much and she's just like oh yeah it's fine yeah it just yeah. happens quite a lot it's almost like an abusive relationship but i did like the fact that she didn't want to go to the academy mm. he was like well neither did i really you know? yeah it's okay but instead of being a goodbye they turn it into a new beginning which i think was probably the right thing to do mm. i love the scenes of the doctor passing over responsibility to ace and you know she obviously finishes with come on professor we've still got work to do mm. i like mccoy though he's subdued like he's he gets more and more subdued in his performances in big finish and i was like i was i was into it so it was directed by ken bentley who i think gets some decent performances from everybody and I think also the sound design is kind of spot on. Yeah. Some of the music is a bit 60s, but there's 80s style synths played super low in the mix. So it kind of feels like without going full kef, yeah. it kind of captures both the period it's set in and the period it's meant to be emulating. And he sort of combines this film noir, spy thriller, B-movie tone, and you get these great car chases that are hard to do on audio, motorbike gangs, shootouts... And but where where it falls apart is just the alien invasion. It's it's B movie flying saucer shit, isn't it? Yeah. Where, with the action move to Bethnal Green for not a lot of reason. Yeah. Bethnal Green, home of the Quiz of Rassilon. Home of the Quiz of Rassilon and end of this audio play. It suffers from something that a lot of Doctor Who stories in the McCoy era suffered from. Part four is nearly forty minutes long. Mm. So what would I, if this was the script that went on TV? They would have cut loads of the plot out, yeah. and it wouldn't have made sense. Yeah, because they just overwrite those scripts. Could you see this shot on like outside broadcast videotape in 1990? Russia on a BBC budget, like Remembrance proof they could do London mm. in that yeah. period. But I think it would have looked, in my head, this looks like Battlefield, particularly the chase uh, where they get abducted by by the Ice Warrior spaceship. Also, because tonally, it's not quite fixed as to what it is. Mm. So I can see, when, with the wrong director, I can see this as being a bit like Battlefield. Yeah. So, as we said, this isn't what how it was supposed to be in 1990. Yeah. It's not really an unproduced TV script. Yeah. It was a series of ideas that they had about what they wanted to do for the next season. It was given the name Ice Time in a Doctor Who magazine article in the 90s. It would have been set, had they written at the time, in 1960s London. Mm. It was an idea that was under consideration for season 27, and the assumption being it would maintain the current pattern they had of two four-part stories and two three-part stories. Nothing was ever written. Most of the mythology comes from that article I mentioned. But Thin Ice, four parts, the second story of the proposed series would have been written by Mark Platt, was due to feature the Ice Warriors in London 1968, it would have seen the departure of Ace to the Prydonian Academy. So they would have introduced a character with underworld connections, so that's Creevy, who would have become similar to the Brigadier as like a reoccurring character. Mm. But I quite like the idea of a reoccurring villain. Not yeah. villain, but um, somebody whose connections aren't legal. And you have that conflict of... You have the conflict of the Doctor with the Brigadier and a military guy. Mm. So I like the idea of a... Like a, a, the Doctor having a criminal friend, like Glitz. Yeah. But, you know, it was never made. And then, obviously, it was adapted for this range. Clangs or bangs? For me, it was a bang, uh, clanger. Uh, well, for me, it was a banger. Too, too, too hot for TV. I've got a few things to wrap up. Yeah? So, what do you think Doctor Who needed to survive in 1989? A TV channel that cared about it. Yeah. Just that. So... For me, yeah, 
I think they should have moved it to Sunday night. Mm. And I think they needed more money, but not a lot more. It was still like in the same... They say things like the tripods and Narnia had a much bigger budget, but when you look at them side by side with Doctor Who of the 80s now, yeah. there's, there's not much difference in quality. No, they're still on videotape. Yeah. And, you know, Russ T. Davis did Dark Season and Century Falls, mm. which I don't know whether you've ever seen them. They were made by the BBC Kids Department, and they were both essentially Doctor Who without the Doctor. Yeah. And they were of a similar quality, similar calibre of guest cast, similar calibre of script to 80s Doctor Who. So I think you could have quite easily even moved it to the children's department. Mm. But I think a Sunday night family audience yeah. would have been the one. Who do you think should have played the Doctor in a, in a movie? Is there anybody that, that springs to your mind? Ooh, for the, what, early 90s film? Yeah. I can... I can... I can see, if it was an American actor, I can see Johnny Johnny Depp yeah, pulling mean, it off. We've we've all escaped a world where Johnny Depp was the Doctor at one point. Yeah, um, but for an English actor, um, I can see the um, I can see Jonathan Price in Brazil mm. doing it, and then I don't know in a weird maybe even Michael Palin. For like, <laughs> like, as in, I don't want him to, but I can imagine people being like, oh, "Let's we'll get someone really English to play the lead guy," and he'd be like, "Yeah, yeah, Michael Palin." If I was going to pick someone a bit left field, yeah, Jeff Goldblum, yeah, I think as a Hollywood person who's a bit weird, yeah, or Christopher Walken, yes, yeah. Like, otherwise, they, I think Alan Rickman's probably a safe pair of hands. And as I said, Pierce mm. Brosnan. What about on TV? Alan Davis. <laughs> on TV. I, th- I think even Chris Eccleston as a younger man, I think he would have pulled it's it off. It's interesting you said that. I've got someone very close to him, Robbie Coltrane. Yeah, yeah, no, Robbie Coltrane. I think he would have actually been a bloody great nineties doctor. Mm. They don't never really cast fat doctors. It's all the running. Yeah. It's all the running. Yeah. Uh, it's just you know Colin puts on a bit of weight for the trial. But yeah. He still manages to get a spring in his step when he's running about. Do you think Doctor Who was in the right hands? Did it need an overhaul? What for Sylvester McCoy? Yeah, no, I thought the la- that the last two series are just as good as it's ever been. Yeah, I, f- I feel like C- Andrew Cartmel knew what he wanted to do with the series. Yeah, and it's just a shame he never. Whether you think this would have been a good script or not, it's a shame he didn't have the opportunity to see through mm. his what they call the Cartmel master plan. Yeah, but it, that's kind of a fallacy. Mm. He was like, it was a, it was that was something he heard in the nineties from fans, mm. and he had lots of ideas, but it doesn't necessarily mean he would have done them all. Yeah, um, it, it, I thought it was like some of the prosthetics and monsters in the, the last two series are as good as it's ever been. Yeah. The Destroyer is one of the best monsters and, and they've the, ever made. Yeah, and it's some of the stuff in Curse of Fenric as well. Yeah. Like obviously some of them look like loose mass, but the design is good. Yeah, but then the ancient one, great. Yeah, you know, I, I I'm in complete agreement. Like there's some really good stuff, and even those creatures in uh, Ghostlight, the husks. Yes, yeah, good sets. Yeah, good character development. Well, they they just figured out what they could and couldn't do. Yeah. So they knew a lot. Of the stories had to have Earth settings. Yeah. Because they could do Earth. You've got you because you've got it. Yeah. Earth is just around the corner, yeah. and they knew they could do period stuff. They knew that the sci-fi stuff had to be kind of grounded in modern day mm. in order to make it work. Yeah. But there you go. It didn't happen. And some 15, 16 years later, yeah. we've got 13 new series of Doctor Who that begin. 
So uh, that was a look at what could have been in the early 90s. Yeah. Next time, what are we going to do? We're doing uh, Perry and the Piscon Paradox, which yes. is a companion chronicle. I've, we haven't done any companion chronicles before. No. Brave new worlds for us. Yeah. And we're going to do two comics... Well, two parts of a comic strip that was never finished. Yeah. And that is the Faction Paradox comic. Mm. It's just to have a look at a bit of bizarre noughties kind of Doctor Who ephemera. Yeah. That exists right on the periphery. Some proper dirty stuff. (laughs) But until then, I've been Dylan. I've been Jack. And we are Doctor Who, too hot for TV. There are worlds out there that only exist on audio. With poorly photoshopped covers... (laughs) and easily breakable CD cases. Out-of-work actors and -and up-and-coming talent. (laughs) Somewhere there's danger. Like white kids with firebombs. (laughs) Yes, Ace. White kids. (laughs) Somewhere there's injustice. Somewhere Lisa Bama's got a well-short haircut and get a well-pissed all the time. (laughs) Somewhere our relationship is even more emotionally abusive than it was on television. (laughs) Somewhere else the tea's just too milky. Come on, Ace, we've got jobs to hunt. <laughs> Another episode, episode 16 of Doctor Who, to- Doctor Who, Too Hot for TV. Top tit for TV. Top tits for TV. Tots TV, Doctor <laughs> Who. Um, we've got some interesting things to look at today. I thought I'd just, you know, I always like to catch up with the news, spin-off world news. Oh, is there? Not spiders, there's just webs. Webs. I've been away for two weeks, and these creatures take over my room. Mark Platt is a Canadian rower. Don't think that's it. No, it's with a C, not a K.